Hey folks, as you know, I have released a new book called The Stone Chiseler. This is a parable about a young boy, Giovanni Cristiani, who is cast into the infamous stone yards where he must decide, will he just accept his fate as a stone chiseler or will he instead become a sculptor, the sculptor of his life? You can find out in this parable, The Stone Chiseler, and I'm giving you a little bit of a sampling of it every Sunday I'm going to be releasing an audio chapter where I had an incredible uh, voice actor, Preston Rosales, who did the reading for Audible. I'm going to release each chapter for the next 25 Sundays. So before you buy the book, if you want to hear what it sounds like, please consider tuning in to the special Sunday editions for the next 25 days of Stone Chiseler Sunday. I released chapter one last week. Chapter two will be this week and then so forth. So check it out. This Sunday, Chapter 2 on Stone Chiseler Sunday. Now, enjoy the show. Well, hey folks, I'm so glad you have tuned in for my conversation with my dear friend, Kenneth Depew. Kenneth is he's kind of an international man of mystery, actually. He serves now as a congressional aide working intimately with the Pentagon and um, and just different facets of defense and foreign policy. And he also has the distinct uh, understanding of Afghanistan, of having served as a veteran during the Afghanistan uh, conflict, as well as now being in D.C., helping Americans get out of Afghanistan. So I thought it would be a great uh, conversation just to kind of get the perspective of one of our uh veterans who have actually served on the ground there and in defending and trying to bring stability to that region and then was also a part of the uh, recent exit from Afghanistan. So Kenneth gives a great detailed um, insight into this this conflict and then we cover a lot of things it's a it, this is a non-political conversation it's just i thought you know this would be fun just to come on and talk about what's happening in the world kenneth also spent time on the ground in the ukraine and so he gives great insight as to what's going on there and what he saw and what he smelled and what you know what all of this means so this is a wide-ranging conversation with someone who has been up close and personal in some of the most recent conflicts that are happening globally. So I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation with my buddy, Kenneth Depew. Boom. All right. So I have hit record. Kenneth Depew, dude, this is so, I mean, it's, it's, first of all, we have waited way too long to do this. This is way overdue, not just to get you on the show, but just to catch up, my brother. I mean, a, a blood brother, a, a, just one of the greatest, one of my favorite human beings on earth that I don't get to spend nearly enough time talking to, seeing, especially since you've moved off to the uh, the uh, Republic of Washington, D.C., now that you're in the Beltway all the time. So just first and foremost, thanks for the time, and good to see you, my brother. Hey, great to see you, too. I, I will say, to, to redeem myself, I'm actually in Yunkin country. Okay. Um, when, I, when I was moving up here, it was, uh, all right, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, as a Texan and as a gun owner, um, two of those were pretty much off the list from the get-go. Right. Um, so it was, Virginia was an easy pick. So yeah. 
uh, I'm in the <laughs> uh, I'm in the conservative part uh, of the the capital area. Um, yeah. So yeah. you and that uh, other let guy, me huh? Redeem myself with that, right? Got no, it. Great to catch up with you. Now there there is no Stanleys up here. Uh, oh, there is I'm... no Tex-Mex. Uh, mm. We we did find a salvageable place. It took it took the wife and I about two years to find a salvageable Tex-Mex place. Is it Tortilla um, Coast by chance, or is it somewhere in Virginia? Oh no. Uh, okay. Tortilla Coast. I'm not going to say anything about a business or about a company that went out of business. Oh, Tortilla Coast went out. Them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, COVID. Not really. Out. Yeah. Wow. Which is unfortunate. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, the first time my wife and I went there and we ordered uh, cheese enchiladas, um, when they served them, I asked for the check. Yeah. And, uh, we, we we didn't eat them. We paid yeah. for them, but we didn't eat them. So well, it was, it's always funny, you know, because if you go and I think there's also that. Uh, was it, is it Hill Country Barbecue or something like that that's supposed to be a barbecue place? But when you're from Texas, and then, yeah, all the congressional folks or the lobbyists, they want to take you to Tortilla Coast if you're from Texas to try to get some Tex-Mex. And you're like, yeah, nice try, folks. But uh, I'm okay. good. Yeah. E yeah. for effort. But, yeah. um, but no, I'm good. I, I just make it at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just make it at home. That, that's the best approach. Um, well, besides being a connoisseur of Tex-Mex and guns and barbecue, good whiskey, I mean, you, you are definitely a man for all seasons, Kenneth the Pugh, but, and there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and that's where it was hard to nail down. I know that you probably wanted me to say, hey, Jada, what the hell do you want me to talk about on the podcast? Because I was kind of all over the map, but I, 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 can't, I can't really pick any one topic because you are kind of an international man of mystery. Uh, but he, here's where I want to start that it's, it's something that I think this audience would really like to hear from someone who has been in the mix with Afghanistan from two very distinct and important, uh, perspectives. One, you served our country in Afghanistan. You received a purple heart for your service there. And then you were also intimately involved with the most recent pullout that I can't even believe it's been a year already, but you saw that chaos. You were involved in some of the logistics of that. So I just want to ask you as someone, as a defender of our freedom, take it where you want. What is your perspective on having served in Afghanistan and then see the exit? Just do you have an opinion? What, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Yeah, so I mean, it, it was it was definitely difficult to see the withdrawal, especially with how it was conducted. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, was was intimately involved with trying to get um, Americans who were there, um, lawful permanent residents who were there, um, Afghan SIV, so special immigrant visa recipients or applicants, so people who were our interpreters, people who had helped us over that 20 years that we were there trying to get them out. So I don't really have the chance to process it. Um, but I mean, seeing the images on TV, it was like, what are we doing? Right. <laughs> and we're doing it so wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, in the, in the immediate development and, and it playing out, it didn't really hit because it's like, all right, I, I can actually serve a purpose here, even though it's 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 difficult because in my role as a congressional staffer, there's really no role that we would have in, in that evacuation and that pullout. But when we have people calling and saying, my wife and daughter went over there. Um, so, so these are naturalized American citizens. 
um, who had been interpreters at, at one point and moved to the U.S. after they had helped us for two, five, six, ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, they come there, but then their their wife and daughter go overseas because someone in their family died, so they had to go back to, to a funeral, or they were trying to sell their 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 property because they knew once Taliban took over, it was it was game over. But with how quickly it happened, they didn't have the time to get out. So hearing that and talking to these people directly, it's like I can't tell them, hey, I'm sorry, we don't really have a role in this. Um, good luck. Yeah. Hope they hope they get out. So it was trying to build some kind of network and tapping into people who I served with in Afghanistan um, who may know someone who's on the ground. And so through a friend of a friend of a friend was able to get connected on WhatsApp with some Marines who were there at in Kabul at Hamid Karzai International Airport and connect with them and tell them who I am and say, hey, I've got this person coming to me. Um, is there anything you can do? And they're like, feed us information, feed us names, feed us phone numbers, gave it like, all right, gave me the format of what do we need? Mm-hmm. So then at that point, it was just like, boom, all right, here's who it is. Well, then that person, um, the, the person who we're helping, they know someone and then they tell someone that, hey, this person was able to help me. So then I started getting pinged from all different directions with people who I'd never met, but I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not going to turn you away. If there's something I can do to help you, I'll do everything I can. And so that turned into, I mean, I think it was on August 14th or 15th, um, 18, 20 hour days until we were done, until we were out on August 30th. Um, So that that, that was quite an involved experience. And every time I would try to go to sleep and get two or three hours of sleep so that I would be functional the next day. Um, it was having to fight that. All right. Am I being lazy? What can I be doing in these two or three hours that can be helpful to someone who, who needs it critically? Right. Um, so, so, so that was difficult. And what made it um, for, for me, uh, with me, what also made it a bit difficult, if you will, is so it, all those efforts really started on August 14th. Um, and that's actually the the day that I was injured in Afghanistan back in 2009. Really? I didn't yeah, know that. So, so I, I'm not, a, I've never been a big birthday celebrator. I know that I'm about you. We're birthday. the same way. I'm you like, and I are the same way. You and I, we're, we're yeah. so just, yeah, had nothing to do with me. Just here I am. Right. Yeah, I'm with uh, you. Nothing. Like if you're going to celebrate someone on the, on, on their, on someone's birthday, celebrate the mother who gave right. birth, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, up to a, up until like a hundred years ago. That was a 50, uh, 50, 50 proposition. Right. So yeah. it's like, I did nothing. I was there. Yeah. But like, what did I do? <laughs> right. um, so, well, and sorry, uh, you might find this funny. Um, so when I was younger, I think it was like three or four. Uh, I, I remember my, my, my grandmother, she, the, the neighbors were having their roof redone and the gentleman doing it, um, he, he was murdered. He, he was killed. Um, and it was on his birthday. And I remember my grandmother, you know, oh, that's so terrible. That was that it was on his birthday. So like three or four year old me, my mind is like, OK, birthday killed. You can only die on your birthday. Oh, gosh. So like I, I operated for like two or three years as an adolescent thinking that like you could only die on your birthday. So it's like, hey, your birthday's coming up. I'm like, I don't want it. You know, I, I I'm, I'm scarred you for life. Don't need it. Um, so, so that was definitely a contributing factor, but, um, 
you know, a, a lot of times when, when in Iraq or Afghanistan, when guys got injured, um, you know, that day becomes their alive day. Sure. So it's like, so I, I treat August 14th more as a special day um, than I do my birthday. Will you tell me um, that story? Because Kenneth, we've never, I, I talked about it before we went on, I, I feel like a terrible friend. And maybe it's because, well, I'll take that back. I, I probably haven't uh, heard the story because one, you're just not the type of guy, as are most of our, our honorable men and women who serve. You, you don't go around talking about, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. And, and so there's that. And then I always am hesitant to ask about something so so intimate or whatever but uh before we got online i wanted to make sure it was okay and so, you know tell this audience and tell me the story about that fateful day yeah so um i was in afghanistan it was my third deployment um i'd done two to iraq as an infantryman so you know the job of him of an infantryman is um put heavy stuff on your back have a gun walk around look for stuff to shoot yeah. Um, my, my first deployment, I was in a scout platoon. So we would do a lot of stuff with our battalion level intelligence officer. Um, so it's like, hey, this intel stuff's pretty cool. Um, my second deployment got selected on a pr- pretty cool like side detail to do where we wore civilian clothes and we worked with intel guys. It's it it got to grow a beard. And, you know, obviously I like that. Um, so I was like, man, I, I, I did not think this through. If I switch over to intel grow a beard. I can wear civilian clothes when I get deployed. Like that's a pretty good deal. Um, so I switched over to Intel, um, to, deployed to Afghanistan. Um, and then I quickly found out that like, Hey, this type of human intelligence, my job, like I go out with the infantry and do infantry stuff, but then also like try to talk to people, get information. And then when I get back, I, instead of just like cleaning my weapon and then going to sleep and eating and hitting the gym, I do all that stuff. And then also have to write reports. So I, I didn't really think that through. So I'm in Afghanistan, a very small combat outpost with like two platoons of U.S. infantry and a platoon of Afghan infantry and, and two Marines. Um, so I just found that, hey, it's better to work with the Marines and the Afghans um, because if my job is to talk to people and get information, um, being out with guys in a uniform in U.S. uniforms and the big trucks um, that that puts up a wall immediately. Whereas if I'm with Afghans and, you know, it, it kind of helps. It tears down some barriers. So you just go out with the, with the Marines and the Afghans all the time and built up a really good relationship with the Afghan commander, um, the Marines. And just, you know, that was the best way to be successful in my job. So when it came time for the Marines to rotate out and go pick up their replacements, um, I had a good rapport with the Afghans. So it was like, hey, while you're gone, um, anytime our base gets attacked, we would have to give a status on, hey, the Afghans are, are green. They're, they're good. They're not injured. They're not hurt. And then we would also have to feed information from the Afghan manned observation post saying, hey, you know, this is where we're taking fire from. So um, I, I volunteered to do that because the commander trusted me. He liked me. He knew me. And, you know, that that's a, an important relationship thing. Um, and also because I'd worked with them so much and been engaged with them, like I felt a responsibility to them also. Um, so the Marines are gone. They're picking up their replacements. Um, our base was getting attacked uh, or started getting attacked um, around 4.30 every day, give or take 30, 45 minutes. That was pretty much standard where we'd get shot at um, on our base. Sometimes it was a little bit. Sometimes it was a lot bit. Um, 
so this I'm I'm up in the the operations center. We had um, we had detained a couple guys who I had questioned. So I'm writing up a report, and then I, I start hearing these little explosions, but they weren't outgoing; they were incoming um, because we were actually shooting outgoing in support of a uh, of a convoy that was being attacked um, a bit up the valley. Um, so I, I hear that I'm like, okay, that's incoming. And so I, I relay that, hey, you know, that that's incoming also. Um, I'm going to go get status on the Afghans. Um, and wait, Kenneth, so I, what, what, is, what yeah. is, real quick, just what is that like when all of a sudden you hear explosions, you realize it's incoming, how far away did it sound? Is it like off in the distance? Is it fireworks? Is it, what is it like? Well, so, so what these were is these were um, grenades that were shot okay. from like a machine gun. Okay. So I, I, I knew that the, the, the grenade launcher they were using, uh -huh. they didn't have the right lubricant for it. So instead of it shooting boom, 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 it, they, it was a bolt action. So they had oh, to really? cycle it every time. So it would be okay. boom, boom. So you could kind of time your movements. Okay. Um, and so it was really interesting because when you when you do these grenade launchers, they're big, heavy pieces of equipment. So you have what's called a TNE, a, &E, a traverse and elevation. It's a tripod. Okay. And you can when you put it on, you can lock in the traverse and elevation. And if you've messed with it before, you can put it on so that it's locked in on a target. So that's what they did with us. They had two different tripods set up in the, in the hills around us. They would cache the grenade launcher in a central location. Sometimes they would shoot from here. They'd fire a couple rounds, move it back, conceal it. Um, sometimes they would shoot from here, shoot a couple rounds, move it back, conceal it. So hear that. And it's like, I mean, it got to the point where it was pretty standard. So, I mean, we were, I was out in the eastern part. Um, it, it was a pretty kinetic area. Um, if anybody's um, seen the movie Restrepo, um, it, we had the northern part of the Korangal Valley, and it was a, it was a pretty hot valley, um, close to Afghanistan, but or Pakistan, excuse me, but not right across the border. Um, I forget that movie, but it, it was about Cop Keating. It came out a couple a uh, couple years ago, um, and two guys earned their Medal of Honor um, at, at that engagement, and that yeah. was that was a valley up and over. Um, but when that happened they were the same brigade as the, the unit we were there with. And so they sent the reinforcements there to, to, to stop everything. So it, it's been a couple of years and a couple more medals of honor have been re, uh, awarded since then. Oh. But at one point, uh, I think it was seven medals of honor had been awarded for Afghanistan yeah. and six of them came from the vicinity that we were in. Wow. Um, so, so it was a highly kinetic area. So, I mean, the incoming, it, it, it was normal. It was, uh, you know, a fact of life, if you will. And it was worse on the, on, the, on the combat outposts and on the fobs because when you're out, at least you can maneuver. Um, but because the, these, our bases were set up to control the roads, mm -hmm. the lines of communication, we were in a bowl. So we had high terrain to each side of us. So it's like, all right, where are we getting shot at from today? Wow. Um, and... So, so, so that made it a bit difficult um, and, and a bit frustrating at times because it's like, all right, if we're out, at least I can move around. Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, oh, sure. Yeah. When you're, when you're on the base, it's like you're, you know, fish in a barrel. Um, yeah. So, so, so we start getting the incoming and I hear that. I'm like, Hey, 
we've got incoming as well as outgoing. I'm going to go get uh, the status on the Afghans, um, see if the OP's got any uh, any adjustments to give or, or, or can spot any, um, you know, tell us where to shoot our mortars. Um, so I hear an explosion, bust out the door, and know, okay, I've got, I've got a second or two to get to here, get to here, get to here along the way, see a couple guys kind of lounging around. I'm like, hey, we got incoming. They're like, oh, shit, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so they go to, well, we better not, you know, be out in the open. So I, I get down to where I'm staying, throw my, throw my gear on, pull the radio up to, to do a radio check um, because I was just in the, the tactical operations center where I would be calling to, so I didn't need to have my radio on me. Um, go to do a radio check, nothing. It's, it's not working. Um, put that radio back, grab another, nothing. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll just run the adjustments back up. Go to open the door, and as soon as I step out, just dark, uh, dark, loud, and then I feel wet stuff on my arm and on my shoulder. Um, takes me, you know, I don't know how much time, probably a fraction of a second, but it seemed like a couple seconds. Sure. And I close the door, step back in, and start looking at myself, and I'm like, all right, I've got blood on my left arm, got blood on my right shoulder, got blood on my knee. Oh, okay. Grenade hit right nearby me. I'm like, hey, but I'm alive. This is pretty cool. Um, so I, I look at it and I see my left arm. It, it looks like it's bleeding worse. Yeah. So I press that up against my body to to apply pressure um, to it. I go to reach for my my first aid kit, which is um, uh, to uh, on my back right at like my uh, four o'clock position, but I can't move my arm far enough back there to it. So I'm like, well, all right, that's not great. Um, I'm trying to grab my first aid kit so I can put a, a bandage on real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, that's you know suboptimal, whatever. Um, all right, but I need to get the Afghan status. So hear another explosion. Know that all right, that's another grenade impacting. Pop the door open. Um, jump over into the commander's office. I'm like, hey, commandant, status. He's like, you're bleeding. I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> status. And he's like, we're good. Um, I'm like, op. And he gives a, a target reference point saying, hey, this is where they're shooting from. Um, and he says OP, but then it, it's he gives an adjustment. And what so is OP? Like, what is OP? Uh, observation posts. Okay. So the thing that the Afghans were running. Got it. Um, so, so they were all up there, and it's just uh, they're a bit away from the cop on an elevated position. They've got good fields of vision. Got it. Um, and so I ask o, um, OP, and he's says the TRP, the target reference point. So that's like a, a known point that if you say, hey, TRP one, the okay. mortars can adjust automatically to TRP one, but then he gives a, an adjustment, um, uh, drop 50, right 200. So if you've got TRP one, you go 50 meters down, you go 200 meters to the right. And that's about the vicinity where they're going to be. So I'm like, all right, cool. My interpreter's in there talking to the commander and I say, hey, further adjustments, I'll call you on my cell. I'm going to run this up to the top. And he's like, no, stay here. You're, you're bleeding. And I'm like, we need to get the adjustments out. So here, another explosion, time my movements, work my way back to the talk, um, pop the door open. And the, uh, the, the radio operator's like, dude, you're bleeding. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I'm like, ANA's green, um, OP reports, TRP one, drop 50, right 200. And they're like, all right, cool. Uh, and I'm like, all right, I'll run back down and get other adjustments. And they're like, no, nah, sit down. Uh, you know, you're, you're bleeding a bit. You might, we, we might want to take care of that. I'm like, yeah, that's right. I said I'd call them anyways. Um, so, yeah. So I had a grenade go off nine feet from me and I'm alive. So wow. um, every day is a good day. 
Um, but but it's also ironic because where it hit, so when I popped that door open, um, the day before the Marines left to go pick up their replacements, um, they received what, what's called a kicker box. So it's um, it's like a plastic bottom, a cardboard side, and then a plastic top, and it was full of medical supplies um, that were supposed to be distributed out to the Afghans. Well, um, that came late in the day, the day before the Marines left. Um, the Marines were told, hey, you, you need to actually leave earlier um, to link up with another group of Marines who are also picking up their replacements. So the Marine who was supposed to give that out to the Afghans didn't have the time to. Mm. Had he have cleared that kicker box out, um, so the, the the guys who were there at the combat outpost, they sent me a picture of the side of the kicker box that was on the grenade side. Um, I had like six, seven pieces go into me, some of my shoulders, some of my knees, some of my forearm. That kicker box ate like 30, 40 pieces of shrapnel. If that wasn't there, it would have been all me. Wow. Um, so, so him not having the time to do that um, was beneficial to me. Um, Dude. Yeah. So was there ever a time where you stopped? And I mean, because you just, it sounds like you just kind of went into a state of not shock, almost like a state of flow. You just kind of zeroed in and like, okay, task at hand and didn't have, was there ever a time that you did come to and go, oh my Lord, it, what has just happened to me? I mean, I, I just can't process what that must be like to deal with. So I'd say about 30, 45 minutes after, after the docs okay. kind of bandaged me up, um, I was like, huh. And one of the docs thought it was funny because, uh, you know, in, in Texas, if you have purple heart plates, mm-hmm. um, you, you park at the airport for free. Um, oh, I, know. I love riding with you, dude. Calls. We got to park everywhere, man. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so you you had to get blown it. up for, for, for my <laughs> convenience, but, you know, hey. God. So the, the doc was, you know, checking in on me every couple of minutes. How you doing? I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. My, my stomach's starting to hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the adrenaline starts wearing down and I'm like, my stomach's starting to hurt and my, my shoulder and knee are not feeling great right now. Yeah. Man. Um, and I was like, but I just realized I get purple heart plates, man. <laughs> Free tolls in Houston and I don't pay for airport parking. And, and he's just wow. like, an idiot. And I'm like, that's real. Yeah. That's what hits you. All right. <laughs> cash saving idiot man i hate paying for parking i'm very george costanza in that regards um among others. got the most beautiful uh, parking place <laughs> yeah i won't move if i find a good parking place um but no so so after my my stomach started getting in a bit of a knot um um uh, they uh they uh i was like uh, they they hit me with a little uh morphine um to to kind of ease the pain well and so then when the helicopter came to to fly me out to the surgical hospital um so so one of the marines my my friend about a month before he had been shot um it it went through the meaty part of his leg behind his knee and he was pissed because it was an armor piercing round so it came in hot and fast Mm. and he was upset that it didn't look like there would be a good enough scar so he picked at it to try to make sure the scar was good. Um, and uh, he, he insisted on walking out to his helicopter to, to fly him out. Um, so when they're like, yeah, we've got a bird in, in, in route, you know, it should be here next amount of time. Um, we'll, we'll bring a litter. Well, no, you won't. He walked out there. I'm going to walk out there. Um, so so when, he, when he went to his helicopter, the, the flight medics were like, we got one injured and he's like, that's me. Um, and so I was like, I'm going to do the same thing, man. 
the my my biggest concern is my dip was back in uh, my 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 housing area. So one of the docs who I was good with, I was like, hey man, I'm going to need a can of dip before I go. I don't know how long I'm going to be out there, but I'll be back. I'll get my stuff. Um, <coughs> and uh, so so then when it came time to go out to the helicopter, um, walked out there. Well, kind of limped out there because at that point my my knee kind of locked up. Still had enough adrenaline to to move. Um, you know, about three weeks after that, couldn't walk, but, um, but at that time I could, so I kind of dragged my leg out there and they're like, we got one explosion injury. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> my medic just shakes his head and like helps me up on board. So it's like, yeah, if he walked out, I'm going to walk out. But, but then when he got hurt too, they called his family shortly after he got injured and they're like, Hey, um, you know, he, he's been injured. We don't know the extent. Um, but it's not looking good. Mm. So his family's there for a couple hours thinking, oh, my God, what happened? So I've got that in the back of the, uh, my mind. So after I got hit with the morphine, but before I got flown out, um, I took that cell phone. And I called my wife and was like, hey, there was an accident. I'm fine. Everything's good. Um, you know, there there was a, you know, and just made up some BS right. story. Right. Because, I mean, I'm over in Afghanistan. She's back in Houston what can she do yeah. other than worry and then let her thoughts get carried away? So, I mean, I, I came up with, I, I, I hate lying and I, I, you know, try to avoid it mm-hmm. whenever possible. But for, you know, it was, uh, you know, I'll say it was a good lie yeah. in that it kept her from, you know, letting her mind get out of hand, but I'm also not going to tell her, yeah, I've got grenade metal on my knee and my shoulder, my forearm, it hurts to walk. Um, can't really move my arm. Don't know, you know, where we go from here. Yeah. Not um, exactly so, what a, what a wife wants to hear, you know, especially when yeah, you're on the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, so it's, so, I mean, then having, having gone through that and that being my last deployment and, you know, um, and it kind of, you know, derailing any plans that I had for the military in the future um, to see how Afghanistan played out. It was, it was heartbreaking once I could finally figure it out. Um, you know, it was heartbreaking because it was trying to help these interpreters who had helped us mm-hmm. get out. But because there were so many Americans there, the guys that we were able to get in contact with, it's you had to triage it. Yeah. Um, and it got to the point where it's like, all right, I need to triage it. The only the only place we're seeing success is with American citizens. So it's like, look, if I get a special, uh, an SIV applicant, a, an interpreter or someone who had helped us, yeah, I'm going to send their name up. But it's like, odds are it's not happening. Wow. It so, was get Americans out first. So Kenneth, give this audience kind of some idea what it's like in Afghanistan today. What, what, what it, well, let me back up a little bit. What was it like the day before our just, you know, very abrupt withdrawal? What was it like? What was life like for the average Af- Afghani getting up, going to work? What did that look like versus what it looks like today? Yeah, it, it, and I think we brought a, a level of stability. Um, to, we brought a opportunity and some level of predictability. Mm-hmm. Um, so opportunity for, for women to be something more than just a childbearer. Yeah. Um, we brought opportunity for um, kids to go to school and actually learn. Uh, and, and that's what, that's one thing that I always found amazing um, in Afghanistan is like around the schools that were out in our rural Valley, 
kids are happy to go to school. Like it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing for them. Um, whether it be a boy's school or a girl's school. So now girls in school, not going to happen. Um, boys who go to school, you know, not a priority anymore. Um, men now it's, you know, you have to have a beard. Uh, you have to abide by their laws, which their laws are used not to uphold a, a system a free and fair system um, like ours are, but they're laws that are used to pursue power and to get rid of enemies and to um, consolidate. Um, so, so now without that opportunity, um, it, it really is a return to, it, it's a reversal of, of we, we, we tried to fast forward them a couple of centuries. Yeah. Um, and it's a reversal to that. Uh, and, and it's a difficult thing, too, because w- with Afghanistan, Afghanistan as a country, at least where we were, um, there was no concept of it as a country Right. Um, out in these rural valleys. Um, really, the only place that the concept of Afghanistan as a country existed was in Kabul and then outside of Afghanistan. Um, otherwise, it's my village, my valley. Mm-hmm. That's what matters. Um, so, so to them talking about, you know, this is good for Afghanistan. They have no concept of that yeah. because it's like, why do I care about this word that you made up? I care about my village. Right. I care about my valley. I care about my tribe. I care about my clan. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so why do I care? Um, so, so, so that's a, that's a hard misconception or that, that, that's a hard thing to, to understand there. Um, so, I mean, just, just to give you an idea of that, um, I mentioned that we had part of the, the northern Corngall Valley, which was a, a pretty hot place. And I remember going to Ashura there. So Ashura is like a council of elders. So it, it's the, the old men who kind of like a, a senate for a village. And then there's, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a valley Shura. And then there's like a larger Jurga. Um, and I remember going there and, you know, um, they were told, hey, we want to build this this awesome paved road for y'all into your valley. Um, it'll be great. They're like, we don't want it. We're like, no, no, no. You, you will really want this. It'll be good because you can get the stuff that you grow and export. You can get it out easier. And then people can come in to get stuff easier. They're like, we don't want people. And they're like, all right, we're, we're going to build you this road anyway. They're like, we don't want it. It's like, okay, whatever, we're doing it. So go to build this road. Um, get, get a contractor to move move heavy equipment in to start leveling it. Um, contractors get attacked. And they're told, stay out of the valley. We go back, we talk to them, we're like, hey, what happened here? Like, we don't want this road. We're like, well, we're building this road. Right. Send new contractors in. They go to level it. Um, their heavy equipment gets destroyed. They get told, go back and tell them we don't want this road. Meet again. What happened? (laughs) I mean, it gets to the point where then they destroy the equipment and they abduct the contractors. And But like we we just weren't listening Mm -hmm. because we thought, hey, this road is exactly what you need. But we weren't listening to them when they say we don't want it. Yeah. We don't want people to be able to come in. We've been getting stuff out of the valley for centuries. Yeah, yeah. What are you bringing us? That so it, that was that's what's difficult. When they don't want a road, how do you bring in 
uh, a Western-style constitutional republic, um, especially when they feel no kinship with the valley next to them yep. unless someone from another valley is fighting them. Yeah. Because that thing, too, is even though Afghans aren't Arabs, um, they, they still go by this old Arab proverb of me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, me and my brother and my cousin against the world. Mm. So it, it's, you know, it's so if you've got a, a, a familial connection, as long as there's no one with a, a, a connection that's further out mm-hmm. is around, you're going to fight with them. But then right. you bring in someone who's a little bit of an outsider and then you're like, all right, we were just fighting yesterday, but now we definitely don't like that person because they're too far out yeah. of our ecosystem. So let's yeah. get together and fight them. So yeah. that that's a difficult thing to understand about it. So. Yeah. I think that is one of the hard things that people, especially in the States, just don't we, first of all, you know, um, I've said many times what we are in the United States, people, a lot of people here think this is normal globally. This is normal. We, we are such a miracle of human existence. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. If people knew our history well and knew the philosophical study that our founders did to, come up with this whole idea and the whole idea like what you just mentioned to have federalism work where you have like these little our for for lack of a better word our tribes that were individual states but have this overriding federalist system where okay there's we're gonna go ahead and let you build roads we'll, we'll take an interstate system we get that we understand that but we also want to have some some sovereign rights here too you know and to make that all work mm-hmm. and then on the other side of the world where they have not evolved to a place where man like you said and, and people hear you say bring them forward a couple of centuries that might sound like kind of oh he's exaggerating a little bit no that they're they are that far behind you could you could show up in parts of afghanistan 200 years ago and it would be functioning about the exact same as it is in 2022 right yeah only difference is now you might have some cell towers yeah and some cell phones yeah but other than that um no it's how they want it, how, how they want to proceed and live their life and, you know, sustenance farm and just it's the, the, the ways of old. Yeah. That's what they're, that's what they want to do. Um, okay. And, so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Kenneth, not to cut you off, but I, I think this is really good because I think you can offer the audience and me a lot of education on this whole idea. So there is no, because there is no real quote unquote, as we think of the United States of America, it's like if, it, there is no, you know, no, uh, uh, like we have, as much as a lot of us dislike people in California, we still consider we're all Americans and we get that. Yeah. If they, if they, that Texas versus California over in quote unquote Afghanistan, California is just all on its own and has no idea what's going on in Texas and doesn't care. And Texans, you stay there, we'll stay here. The Taliban, though, is now the quasi, I guess, government for the Afghanistan, what the former Afghanistan or what we are going to refer to as as Afghanistan. So what does that look like for those rural villages? Will they try to reach out to those rural villages and bring them into Taliban rule? I mean, do they now, is it kind of like the old Roman provinces? We're going to go out there. We're going to place somebody in your, in your valley and you're going to, abide by the government that we are we have established back in Kabul what how does that all work i mean 
or do they even, it, am, I, am I overthinking? Do they even get no, that? It, it, they were actually doing that when we were still there. There were okay. all the shadow governors and shadow okay. judges okay. Um, because we couldn't be everywhere all the time. Okay. Um, so in Afghanistan, you would have a, a, a shadow governor who was in charge of a province, but they did so in the shadows. So going back to the how, uh, you know, me, me against my brother, me and my brother mm -hmm. against my cousin, you know, we were the world. So for Afghans, Muslims, okay, I don't trust the, the Westerners. I don't trust the, the Americans. Canadians, Latvians, Germans, everyone who was there. Um, so to a degree, some of them, some of them voluntarily subjected themselves to the Taliban. So the Taliban was doing that. That's what they've done. But where they'll run into problems is the, the, uh, the Taliban is largely a Pashtun um, movement. So the Pashtuns in Afghanistan are in the east and in the south. And there's also Pashtuns on the other side of the border in Pakistan and what's the uh, the, the federally administrated tribal areas. Um, so some of the Pashtuns don't see Afghanistan and Pakistan. They see Pashtunistan. Where they'll have issue with Afghanistan as it's geographically drawn is it's ethnically diverse with Tajiks, Uzbeks. Um, there's Hazaras who are Shia Muslims. The rest are Sunni Muslims. So how? What's their staying power there? Now, when when the Taliban came to power in the '90s, they did so because after the Soviet withdrawal, um, it was chaos. And what the Taliban brought, what what the, the market that they captured was order. And so they were able to bring order. So even to non-Pashtuns, even to non-extremist Muslims, even to people who didn't subscribe to their brand of Islam, it was, you know what, I don't like everything they do, but they bring some order. Mm. There's no more fighting. There's no more, um, there, there's no more warlords doing things. They at least had some kind of law that they subscribed to. Even though they use it for their power, it was better than lawlessness. To some, so that that will be their struggle is as they bring some order to to some parts of the country. Um, is at what point do the Tajiks say, you know, I'm sick of these Pashtuns subjugating mm. us and ruling over us? At what point do the Tajiks do the same? Um, and then with those two specific ethnicities, they've got the benefit of a Tajikistan, another country which mm. will support ethnic Tajiks and in. In Afghanistan, and then same with Uzbekistan. So, long-term prospects, um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um, there. But then now, unlike before, the Taliban is also, if you will, um, being challenged from the more extreme with uh, Islamic State Khorasan. So it's people who view the Taliban as too moderate. Mm. So, and those are largely, that's largely popped up in the East, um, in the area that I was in, um, where it, it's people who pledge allegiance to the Islamic State mm -hmm. and view, um, and, and so challenge the Taliban there. So, so it, again, it, it's how, how do the Taliban run Afghanistan when no one really has a concept of Afghanistan? What does it all all mean to America at this point? Well, so I mean, I think we saw with um, Zahiri 
um, be, being killed a, a week ago, was it? Mm-hmm. I, I've lost all concept of time since COVID. Um, so it may have been a week ago. I know it wasn't a month ago. Um, but so was Zahiri being killed um, in Kabul, not mm-hmm. just in Kabul, but in an affluent part of Kabul um, where the Taliban live, where yeah. the leaders of the Taliban live. So um, when, when that happened, the, the spokesperson for the Taliban decried it as a violation of the Doha Agreement which that was a whole agreement that we worked out with the uh, Taliban on what would get us to withdraw. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what's a violation of the Doha agreement is harboring Al Qaeda is harboring international terrorists. That's part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we shouldn't be surprised that the Taliban broke that agreement. They broke it at the very beginning. Right. Um, because part of that agreement was that they had to enter into reconciliation talks mm-hmm. with the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Now, why we weren't including the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan in these conversations with the Taliban to begin with is beyond me. Yeah. But that's how we did it. So they were supposed to talk, coordinate, work out some kind of power sharing agreement, mutual respect. Didn't happen. As soon as it was, all right, we are withdrawing by X date. Taliban started getting more active and started sweeping through provinces. So shadow governors and shadow judges came out of the shadows. Um, They paid off um, Afghan Afghan army commanders to, hey, surrender and we'll pay you. Surrender and turn over your weapons and we'll pay you or we fight. Mm. And so they made the logical, rational choice of, all right, if I've got an overwhelming force, I'm going to get paid and give up. so they didn't negotiate, but the whole premise that we could work out a deal with the Taliban that they would abide by after we left was foolish and naive yeah. Yeah. because that was it. So anybody who's paid attention to Afghanistan stuff over the past you know, two decades that may be familiar with the Afghan saying that the Americans had the watches, but we have the time. Yep. That was yep. their plan. Just wait, just us wait out. it out. Mm-hmm. No, once we're gone, they can agree to open Disneyland in Kabul. They can agree to whatever they want, but as soon as we're gone, they're not going to abide by it because they know we're not going to come back. Right. And we're not going to enforce it. So it was just, they they would agree to whatever we wanted them to, um, just get us out. So, and that's difficult, not just for counterterrorism aspects, Mm -hmm. um, because the, the, the strike on Zahiri while successful, um, it was fully reliant upon another country allowing us overflight. And if you look around Afghanistan, Iran's not going to allow us overflight. Mm-hmm. Pakistan, um, who used to be an ally, even though they played both sides okay. um, during our time there in Afghanistan, they they may, they may not. Um, so now we're we're stuck with the the northern approach routes, which get us pretty close to Russia. Um, and then with the Central Asian stands, some of them can go either way. So when we left and said, oh, no, it's OK, we'll we'll continue to con- conduct counterterrorism operations over their horizon. Well, hopefully. Maybe. Yeah, we'll see. Wow. Well, and so uh, one last question about Afghanistan. I think I know the answer because just just because I know how you are unbelievable uh, men and women of the military look at things as you look at it, all your work there, walk out a door, get blown up all of it. And you see now what it's come to. Do you have any feelings of a time that, you know, what, what, what was that 
blood, literally in your case, blood, sweat, and tears. What was it all for? Or is it just like, that was the job. That's what they asked me to do. I did it. And this is how it turned out. But that was the mission. Or, or do yes. you look at it and go, oh my God, how real? I mean, I, I don't know. Cause you've got to, obviously you have a different perspective than I, a safe and secure, mostly 72 degree American over here where it's all safe and warm and fuzzy to, to have never had to go over there. So your perspective of seeing that withdrawal is infinitely different than mine. Yeah. So, and, and I got that experience a little bit earlier than most because the valley that I was in was withdrawn from in 2011. Mm. So I remember seeing that and like, well, okay, why then? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was withdrawn from in 2011, but then we reoccupied it because it got so bad. And it's like, oh yeah, that's why. <laughs> because it's so close to Pakistan. It's, it's a great safe haven, not just for the Taliban, and um, Al- but also for Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. and, and more internationally focused terror groups uh, because that's that area was part of where Al-Qaeda had training camps. So that's when you leave that time and space for that operation, they're going to work. They're going to mm-hmm. operate there. They're going to use that safe haven. Um, so, so I had that experience in already in 2011. So then when I see 2021, 10 years later, then it's like withdrawing from the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we can have those discussions of, you know, did we fight the war the right way? Um, I think it's absolutely correct when people say, well, we can't go in there and nation build. Right. That's absolutely true when they have no concept of nation. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is conduct counterterrorism operations. You can deny them the time and space to operate freely. You, I mean, just like taking out, um, we, we did it much more in a quicker succession with ISIS where you, we took out Baghdadi, then we took out the guy who took out Baghdadi's place. And then you, if, if you do that, then you start getting these leaders thinking, I don't want the number one job, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a huge target on my head. Right. Um, and so the I Americans mean, are pretty good shots when they want to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so so it's we can have that discussion and it's valid that, well, you know, we wasted a lot of money in Afghanistan trying to build projects. Absolutely we did. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't have been trying to force some kind of national system or mm-hmm. some kind of statehood on people who don't perceive themselves as part of a state. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely correct. Agree. But we got to the point too, where maintaining our position in Bagram mm-hmm. um, at, at a relatively low cost, um, yeah. not just financially, but in um, blood spilled, and being in a, in a forward position where we can project power and be that enforcement of the Doha agreement, that should have been the, the point that we negotiated from. And we only had and like 2,500 service people there at that yeah. time, right? I mean, it was a pretty yeah. relatively small number, especially when you consider yeah. the lingering uh, effects of World War II we have over and still in Japan, still in Germany, you know, all oh, you know, Eastern Europe, yeah. we still... And 2,500 people to have that sort of a chaotic land, at least like to your point, somewhat predictable, somewhat contained, and not a haven for terrorists. It's something that I think that we'll be scratching our heads over for a long, long time. Um, Well, if I may, and out of Bagram, part of the reason why the Afghan National Army fell so quickly is because we spent 20 years training them to fight as we fight. Right. 
that's reliant on precision fires from artillery. Mm -hmm. That's reliant upon close air support. That's reliant upon, upon intelligence collection. And so, like I said, I used to roll out with the two Marines in Afghan infantry. Those guys know how to fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They know how to fight their way. Yep. So question the wisdom of trying to take people who know how to fight and say, you know, no, fight our way. Yeah. You know, if you've got someone who's a street fighter and then you try to teach them some technical, you know, martial art, they'd be like, no, I just punch stuff in the face. Yeah. It's like, all right, fair. If that's what works for you, then just punch stuff in the face. Right. Um, but as soon as we said we're leaving and we're not leaving behind those, those enablers, yeah. those fires, those um, um, close air support, this intelligence collection, they're like, well, now you taught us how to fight this way, but now you're taking away yeah. how we actually fight that way. So um, had we, had we stayed and maintain a small presence in Bagram, not only would it, would it have been our abilities, uh, would it, would it have maintained our capabilities, but it would have maintained the Afghan national army's capabilities. And it would have been a far different outcome um, than what we saw. So you bring it, I think that's a perfect segue because now let's uh, go, let's go into some more war and destruction. You've been on the <laughs> ground, uh, not as a soldier, but you have been into uh, Ukraine and you've seen, and you know, one of the things that what kind of made me think, okay, this is a great time to go into that is that what we're seeing in the Ukraine, and you correct me if I'm wrong anytime, because this is your expertise, expertise is your wheelhouse, is a war that is fought with just kind of almost at this point, archaic tactics. They don't have, Russia does not have the intelligence and precision that we do, like to take out a, a leader with that precision. Instead, all they know to do is go blow up and break stuff and kill people and just leave a path of destruction. And so this is almost like a, a circa 1945 version of warfare going on in Eastern Europe right now. Tell me, what what you saw when you were on the ground in in Ukraine and just kind of paint the picture of uh what are what are the people there and 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 also and feel free to educate the audience on the historical relevance of Russian presence in Ukraine because there there are some Russian sympathizers in the Ukraine correct that, that actually consider themselves Russian uh there's just a whole mixed history there that I don't think a lot of people really understand but kind of what did you see and just give us kind of an understanding of what the what are we what's it like being on the ground? Yeah, so in, and I would say one thing I would correct is what we're seeing now mm -hmm. isn't 1945; it's more 1914. Yeah, it's more, more yeah. World War it's World War One. Yeah, you're right. As the as the as the lines have become more static in yeah. the in the south and in the southeast, um, it, it it really is turning into an artillery slugfest. Um, whereas what we saw in the beginning days of the war was a lot like 1945. It, we, they tried to conduct it as a blitzkrieg, right. um, where it was move in hard and fast, hard, fast, and heavy. Um, but seeing how the Russians conducted it, it, it became really clear that they, they lack operational art. They didn't really know how to employ their, their forces well, um, one example of that is with the, the Russians early on dropped um, in, in an airborne infantry unit. Um, uh, and I think there were some Spetsnaz mixed in. So like their special forces, they dropped them into a, an airport outside of Kiev called uh, Hostomel. Um, 
and they dropped them in there. They took the airport fairly quickly. And that was, I think, the first day, maybe second day of the war. Um, well, you know how I mentioned how the Afghans folded because they didn't have precision fires. They didn't have close air support. Um, they didn't have intelligence. Well, yeah, the Russians succeeded mm-hmm. initially. Um, but then the Ukrainians came back because they dropped a small group of light infantry without support pretty deep into Ukrainian territory. And then when the Ukrainians realized, that, all right, they don't have the stuff that scares us. Let's go take that back. And they did. Yeah. And they took it back in pretty quick order. Um, so what's interesting there at Hostomel is that that's where the... Um, uh, the Antonov aircraft. So these are the the biggest aircraft ever built, and they're they're built in Ukraine. They're these huge, massive airplanes. Um, and one of the ones that stationed there, I, I forget its name, and I would butcher it if I tried. Um, but it, it's like the pride of Ukraine or the heart of Ukraine is its name. Well, when the Russians were getting counterattacked, one of the things they did is they just destroyed the airplane. It was of no military value, but it was called the pride or the heart of Ukraine. Symbolic. Yeah, exactly. So it was symbolic. So it was, hey, you've got this big machine that you're known for. That's um, um, the biggest in the world. It's like a point of pride. All right, you're going to kick us out, but on the way out, we're going to destroy it. Um, And they did. But that's just a plane. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we saw outside of Kiev, so uh, for, for some context, I was there at the end of May. Um, so we were <clears throat> three months into the war. Um, the Russians had already repositioned. They had surrounded, they had partially encircled Ukraine. There was that 40 kilometer long convoy. Um, the, you know, it was, Kiev was going to be overrun. It was just a matter of when, but then the Ukrainians put up a fight mm-hmm. um, that no one expected them to. Not the Russians, not us, um, maybe even not the Ukrainians. Um, But they showed the will and the capability, um, even though at points they lacked the capacity. Um, So they may not have had the the cool new tanks or the the great pieces of equipment, but what they did have, they knew how to operate it, and they were willing to operate it. So when they were able to force the Russians back, the Russians uh, in the north retreated back through Belarus, and then they repositioned and focused the fight in the south, in the Donbass and north of Crimea, um, where they've been fighting since 2014. Um, so when I was there, we we flew into Poland, um, took a, uh, a vehicle to Lviv, which is in the far west, and then took a train to Kyiv. Um, that first day that we were in Kyiv, um, they went around and showed us the suburbs where the Russians had occupied. So for, for context, so if, if you're familiar with Dallas, if Dallas was Kiev, mm-hmm. like, and I'm talking like Dallas, Dallas, like downtown, the Russians were in Louisville and Flower Mound. Okay. That's wow. how close they were to the center. Wow. If you're familiar with Houston, they were in uh, Cyprus, Tomball, and Spring. So it was a pretty quick drive from downtown Kiev to these places where the Russians were. Wow. Um, one, one of those places was, uh, I think it was Borodyanka. I, I put a little notes on my second screen, so I got some of the names right. So in, in Borodyanka, in, in their main square, um, on the opposite side of the street, there's eight apartment blocks, eight big apartment buildings. Four of them were cut in half um, from Russian artillery. Um, from Russian missiles. Um, 
what's interesting is that the local Home Depot equivalent also, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the Russians bombed that too. So it was destroy where people live and then destroy their ability to repair it after we leave. Um, wow. The people there, what they said is the Russians came through and they, on their megaphones, if you come out, you're considered an enemy, we will shoot you. So you, it was, you were isolated. You were locked into your apartment building. Um, they destroyed pharmacies because um, the part of what, what Putin was saying is that Russians are, are drug addicts. So they destroyed pharmacies to destroy the drugs, but then also that's the stuff that you would need to treat people who are injured. Sure. Um, and then similar to destroying the, the Antonov plane, um, like the national poet of Ukraine was from that area. So there was a big statue there of him. Um, the Russians shot that up too. Um, the school that was right behind these apartment blocks, a kindergarten, same thing. Wow. So, and it's, that's the Russian playbook that they used in Syria is what they do is they destroy civilian, non-military targets that civilians are relying upon where people live, where people go to school, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a migrant flow. Yeah. And we saw that in the early, early days of the war, um, Ukrainian, mm -hmm. Ukrainian women and children fleeing to Poland, Slovakia, anywhere that they could get out of. Because when the Russians do that, then they say, if you haven't left, you're a combatant. The only reason you're sticking around is you're a combatant. So anyone who's left is fair game. So that, that, that's what they did in um, Boryodyanka. Um, one of the other suburbs that we went to, which if people have been paying attention to Ukraine, they, they might be familiar with the name is uh, Bucha. Mm -hmm. So this is the, it's a suburb of Kiev. It's where, it's kind of the, the nice suburb where people may have a weekend house or when you retire, you move out to Bucha. You're close enough to Kiev to get in, but you're, you're living a bit more of a country life. Um, this is where they found a mass grave um, by a church. Uh, it, it wasn't the Russians dumping Ukrainians in, the, in a mass grave. It was the Ukrainians denying, or excuse me, it was the Russians denying the Ukrainians access to the cemetery. Because if you were able to look on the satellite and see all these new plots in the cemetery, you're able to look and see, okay, how many, how many people have been buried recently? So the Ukrainians brought their dead to this church. Uh, I think it was around 300. And they buried them there because they couldn't bury them in the cemetery. And when we went there to that church, you know, a, a, lot, of uh, a lot of people don't realize how strong of an association smell uh, is. No, I was going to ask you, what were the, what, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's one of the things I yeah. want to know. There's only two smells that like I, I can distinctly remember. One was after 9-11 going into the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. um, so my first duty station was up here in Washington, D.C. We spent about three and a half weeks at the Pentagon after 9-11. And the smell of, of burnt jet fuel, burnt building, burnt paper, burnt people, that smell sticks. Mm -hmm. um, that smell in Bucha, as soon as we got out of the vehicles outside of the church, um, probably... 150 yards away from where the actual mass grave was, mm -hmm. the smell hits you in the face. Wow. Um, so, so Bucha is also where they found underground um, basement torture dungeons with people with their hands tied behind their back and a single shot to the head, um, people in 55 gallon drums. So it, it's, those were the atrocities that the Russians were 
were committing in, in Ukrainian occupied areas. Now you compare that to how we approach war in Afghanistan. And, you know, sometimes our frustration, we'd want to do a fire mission somewhere, but we couldn't because there was a house yeah. or, or a hut 300 meters away. For them, it's, that's not a consideration. Yeah. It's actually part of the plan. So, um, so yeah, so, so having been there and having seen that and seen that the atrocities that, that they're committing, um, but then at the same time, being in those places that were liberated and seeing how resilient mm -hmm. the Ukrainian people were, um, we, they, they took us to a school where they had set up not just a, a kitchen for people to come and get food because they, they, they don't have basic necessities. Um, it wasn't just a kitchen for people to come get food, but they turned the whole gymnasium where they were receiving donations and putting them into bags and people could come and collect them and go um, to, to rebuild their lives. Um, because what they had was, was taken from them because while the Russians were also bombing apartment buildings, those that they didn't bomb that they were going into, they were looting. They were taking refrigerators, they were taking televisions, they were taking... So as they were treated from the outskirts, from the northern outskirts of Kiev, the, the tanks were loaded with Russian loot. They looked at the, um, the, the kind of Russian equivalent of DHL, if you will, mm -hmm. and the one right next to the border in Belarus. After the Russian withdrawal from northern Ukraine, sent more parcels back to Russia that had ever been sent and it was washers dryers refrigerators uh it, it was they were stealing the the lives and livelihood of anybody they could so how do we how do we treat russia going forward how how is putin i mean he's got to be on par with um just some of the the worst leaders ever that we've dealt with. i mean there's no like bring it's 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 it, it fascinates me and i don't think i've really fully got my brain around it kenneth that you know, five, six years ago, it would not be unusual to have, you know, now President Biden have some sort of a, a summit or something that would involve, uh, you know, Putin. Now he's he's off the world stage as a serious, I, I would think. I mean, he's kind of like Kim Jong-un material now. I mean, right? I mean, is that how we deal with yeah. him going forward? I mean. And I don't see how this is reversible. Yeah, you don't come back from this. And he had to have known that, which is so bizarre. It, it, but I don't think he did because I think he thought that it would be so quick. Yeah. Um, be, because, so, I mean, they thought that they would have Kiev and then the rest in three days and then Kiev in three days and then the rest in a week. Right. Um, I mean, our own intelligence assessment. So, uh, you know, General Milley, when he talked about it, he said it looks like Kiev will fall in 72 hours. He didn't just pull that number out of the air. That's yeah. from people who are looking at, okay, um, equipment, who has what, how well can they use it? How quickly can they move? What's their, I mean, that was an intelligence assessment that everyone thought that it would be quick um, to, to include Putin. I think Putin thought, especially after invading Georgia in 2008. Mm-hmm. And then invading Ukraine in 2014. So in 2008, when they invaded Georgia, there were no consequences. Yeah. There were no repercussions. Right. Um, after the initial invasion in 2014, it was, all right, we're kicking you out of the G8. It's the G7 now. Right. But we're still going to do stuff with you. Right. Um, 
you know, and he, he, I think he viewed it as he has, so he has leverage over Europe because of energy, mm-hmm. because it's been said, and I don't know who originally said it, but Russia is a gas station with the government mm-hmm. um, because they're huge exporters of natural gas. So I think he thought that, okay, I can coerce Europe into looking the other way or not acting um, because I control their energy flows. Now, if I take Ukraine, not only do I control energy, but now I've got about a quarter of global wheat. So if they don't succumb to my coercion because they can't heat their homes and they can't, um, you know, fuel up their cars, now I can starve them mm-hmm. because Ukraine has about 10% of, um, of, of global wheat exports. Um, Russia has about 18%. So now if Russia had taken both of those, now they're at 28%. So a, a quarter to a third. So now they can starve people. Mm. So it just gives them more coercive power. But I don't think he thought or anybody thought that Ukraine would put up this big of a fight. So whereas he thought he would have power, it's it's been quickly lost. And I mean, you can see that reaction. You can see that by the reaction of his allies to his invasion. Yeah. Um, I mean, in January, um, Russians sent um, Spetsnaz, their, their, their special forces, to help put down anti-government protests in a, in a Central Asian country. I think it was Kazakhstan. I don't want to butcher it. I, don't, I, I may be misremembering it. Um, but to one of his Central Asian allies, um, one of the stands. Well, then when things started not going his way, in Ukraine, and he asked that same country, "Hey, can you send some people my way? We need some bodies." They were like, "Yeah, we're good. <laughs> right, we're all right." Um, look at China. Um, you know, China's messaging on it early on is mm-hmm. very different than it was before. Absolutely. So he's alienated even people who are supportive of his overall goals. Which his overall goal isn't just to take Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, but his overall goal is to degrade. The the international system that the America that we've created right. that, that rules based order, um, and just the general idea that you don't take land by force. Um, so his goal is to undermine uh, uh, America's preeminence in the world, and that's China's goal too. Sure. But the fact now that they're not in conjunction on this. When even China's like, that may be a bridge too far for us, given everything with COVID, given everything with Taiwan, given everything with just everything that they do, that, that's pretty shocking. So where does it end? Where do you think that all this goes, Kenneth? I know that there's, I mean, I'm not going to hold you to it, but where do you see this going for, you know, Ukraine? You know, fast forward three or four years, where are they? And And that's a difficult question because that's a question which I ponder too is, what is success for Zelensky? When can Zelensky say it's over? We've won. Mm-hmm. Is it pushing back to the May uh, to the February twenty third borders, mm-hmm. where the Russians still occupy parts of the Donbas and Crimea? That's a difficult one because retaking Mariupol will be difficult. Um, but let's say they pu- the Ukrainians push the Russians back to where they were on February twenty third. You'll have widows of soldiers mm-hmm. say, no, that's not good enough. So politically where he may have an idea of where he thinks victory is, 
but that pressure, uh, I, I think, will be a difficult one. And I and I don't know. Um, that'll be a tough one um, because also what happens in Russia between now and then? Um, do do the oligarchs whose whole thing is making money right? At what point do they say, all right, you're no longer an asset. You're a receipt at this point. Yeah. And at what point do they get rid of them? But then also that's a question of who replaces them. Mm -hmm. Because there's some theories that, that, that Putin and the Kremlin is one of the more moderates. Wow. That's a bit troubling, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um, Or maybe not that he's one of the more moderates, but there are more extreme people in the Kremlin than he. So it's who replaces them. So it, it's, you know, do we want the stability of a known entity of someone who we know is terrible? Or do we want someone, or how do we deal with someone who may come who we don't know how terrible they are? Um, so, so where this lands, I don't know. Um, but, but I mean, what we are seeing now um, with Ukraine is the lines have largely become static. There are some localized counterattacks where the Ukrainians are, are taking some territory back, but it's not, it, it's a little territory for a lot of cost. Um, we, we are seeing some more, some bolder attacks by the Ukrainians, mm-hmm. even though they're not taking credit for the, um, for the airfield in Crimea. Um, I mean, two days ago, an airfield in Crimea just kind of lit on fire um, with a couple explosions and a, a number of Russian jets are, are no longer operable. Um, so it depends. It depends on the flow. It depends on how much how much weapons continue to flow into Ukraine um, for the Ukrainians. Um, it also depends on um, domestically in Russia. Well, I mean, early on, we saw people getting arrested for protesting the, the war in Ukraine. Um, then when, when they outlawed that in Russia, people were getting arrested for holding up blank signs. Because the blank signs were were their form of protest because it was uh, you can't say you can't you can't call it a war to right. begin with. special right. military operation so you can't call it a war and you can't criticize it so people would hold up blank signs and it's like we know what you're doing and there's no rule of law in Russia you know you, right. you don't court and say well no you plead your case and the judge is like hey, you know what you're right uh, <laughs> so at what point do the mothers of these Russian conscripts um, at what point do they do they take their power forward? Because that's been a major issue with Russia um, in the Afghan um, war in the 80s. It was Soviet um, mothers of dead soldiers mm-hmm. who were calling out for an end to the war. No more mothers should have to be, um, should have to see their sons killed. Um, they got to the bottom of a nuclear sub accident um, because of mothers of the sailors on the nuclear sub protested the Kremlin and called for the truth to come out. Um, so, so that's a, a very powerful force there. Um, so how long does it take for, for them to, to get there? Um, especially as Russia's conscription class is coming up on, as Russia's getting ready to start a new round of conscription. Um, so, and then that, that also is an interesting point and where does it go from here? So, so one of the theories on why Russia invaded when it did, mm-hmm is because since since the end of the Soviet Union, fertility rates have dropped. They've dropped even more drastically since 2000. So they're, they're not meeting their replacement rate. And the number of men, young Russian men, who will be subject to conscription is falling below the point 
where they'll be able to to fight a war. So one of the theories put out there by a, a guy, he's a demographer, he's also like a geopolitical strategist, interesting guy, um, Peter Zahan. His theory is that this is the last year that the Russians can do this because they're not going to meet their conscription numbers next year, much less the year after that, much less the year after that. So does Russia have the manpower? Because that was part of the part of the the, the reasoning behind why Russia would swoop to quick victory is, well, they've got more people than the Ukrainians right. do land. Do they? Mm. Crazy. They may. They may not. Well, so a lot of factors into this and no clear answer. So sorry for making that as clear as mud, my friend. Well, you know what? Here's one. I've got, I've got another battle for you. I mean, we're just going to keep moving from battle to battle to battle. And I've got another one that I know you've got an opinion on. Okay. Rangers and Astros. How are your Strohs? Strohs looking good. It's not a Val- battle. It's a slaughter. So, yeah. Valdez throws. So seven scoreless innings. AL best Astros beat Rangers 7-3. I know you're just loving that, aren't you? I was watching it before we got on. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, so that's the hard part of being one of the hard parts about being up here. I mentioned the Tex-Mex. I mentioned mm-hmm. the barbecue. Uh, so I still have my weekend plan for Minute Maid. Mm-hmm. Um, so my friends back in Houston, I've never been more popular with them. Because I bet. So, um, so yeah, so I've maintained that. Yeah, it, it, it's a good run. It'll be interesting because usually the Astros only go to the World Series in odd number of years. Yeah. Um, since 2017. So us being in 2022, looking to break that cycle. But, I mean, they're, they're looking good. Um, you know, and it's not just are they doing okay after losing Correa. Yeah. They're all right. Yeah, no, they're they're <laughs> so, crushing it. I'm 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 hoping for a uh see. I'm hoping for a I wanted a Braves Astros World Series. Again? Yeah. Because I because here's the deal. Then I, I went either way. The Braves are my uh, favorite team of all time because I grew up watching the Braves and Josh Tomlin, one of my best buddies. Yes, from TBS. We couldn't see anything yeah. else because they didn't yeah. broadcast. You know, all the Ranger games got blacked out. And um, so I've, I grew up as a Braves fan and my buddy Josh Tomlin, who was on the World Series team, uh, you know, he's he's actually, he and I are starting a podcast together and just a great, great dude. So not only do did I grow up loving them, I got Josh, and then, of course, you know, I'm going to pull for the Astros. I mean, I want one of the Texas teams, and of these two, it's going to be the Astros that are going to go forward. So if I can get another Braves and uh, Astros World Series, I, I, I got nothing to complain about. I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I'd be good with that. I really want to see, though, a Mets-Astros World Series. Uh, um, that way we can beat New York, not just in the ALCS, but in an actual championship. Both teams came to the league the same year. Um, both teams are primary blue and orange, and both teams um, have shortened names, the Astronauts versus Metropolitans. Wow. So, and then also you go back to 86. I was about where, to say, that was yeah. that, I remember that, dude. I, gosh, I was 11 years old. I watched that game. I remember that. And uh, it was from 1704 Mockingbird Lane in Sulphur Springs, Texas. I remember watching that game. Yes, that sir. was that was huge. Well, one of the things I love is on, on Sundays, I like to listen to the game on, put, put the game on audio on my phone. Yeah. Uh, put a little weight on my back. 
and uh, go walk around D.C. So let's talk about rucking a little bit. So I watched you from afar do your rucking, and as you've seen, I've adopted rucking myself. I didn't know much about it, and I'm reading this book, which you would love this book if you have not read it already. It's called Comfort Crisis. Have you heard of this? No. I may have. I think I have, yeah. Michael Easter, I believe is the, the author's name. Dude, it is fantastic, and it's totally something you would it would resonate with you. And so, and I guess it, who's the guy that founded Go Ruck? Um, McCarthy. Let me see here. He's, I'm not sure. I'm he's terrible a, with names. He's a Green Beret. Go Ruck. And let me see here. And, and so I had watched a documentary on them. And, and so he's, he is actually mentioned in this book and I was like, okay, I know who this is. And I've read, I've read, I watched the documentary on the, the founding of Go Ruck and all that. And I knew you were a, a big Go Ruck guy. And here's what got me is, or not a Go Ruck specifically, but I know you go on these long rucks all over DC. I thought, you know, okay, I like the idea cause I don't run anymore of all the training I do. I don't run anymore. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of resistance training, a lot of quick twitch, but my, my knees and everything, I want to protect those as I'm getting older. And the idea of adding some weight to get that strength. And the whenever I read that you your exertion of cardiovascular, your cardiovascular exertion increases by like 28% if you have substantial weight on your back while you walk. I'm like, well, I got to try this. And so, dude, I'm, I'm in on it. So, so. <laughs> oh, it, it, it's great. Uh, I mean, I love it. I, I'm fortunate to be where I am up here in DC yeah, because yeah. I can go a number of different routes. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll go park up at the Iwo Jima, the, uh, the, the Marine Corps Memorial and that path, I skirt the cemetery, uh, Arlington. I cross the Memorial bridge, got this amazing view of the, the, the Lincoln in front of me. And then the, the Washington, so great. um, passed by the world war II Memorial. Sometimes I'll go all the way to the Capitol, turn around, go back. Um, other times I'll start at the Capitol, go this way. Sometimes I'll drive down South and do the Mount Vernon trail, do, do a couple miles up that way. So just changing up that scenery. And for me, I love it because it's a good smoker, you know, yeah. I mean, you get smoked yeah. for a couple miles and it's not just your legs. No, it's it, up in my upper shoulders, dude. That's oh, what's yeah. crushing me. When I, I, you knew John Landis, didn't you? Did, were you ever around when Landis was in DC? Sadly. Okay, so you you know that. So Landis and I, like a couple of old men, we either walk or we play. Now we play pickleball on Thursday mornings. And so this morning to change it up from our now pickleball, he introduced me to pickleball. We went for our our usual old man walk and I rucked it. And dude, I'm telling you, it my shoulders are talking to me by the end of that. Yep. Yeah. But so I love that because it's it's a it's a full workout. Totally. Solitude. Mm-hmm. Um, because so, I mean, I can only listen to the Astros between, you know, March and November. Right. Um, and I, I don't listen to World Series games or playoff games uh, on there. I'll, I'll stay home for that. But I mean, so, so yeah, so you'd see, I'd put it up on Instagram. Um, I have some friends, hey man, we'd love to go rocking with you sometime. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's my time. I'm with you. That's how I'm about my workouts. My- Yep, that's my disconnect from the world time. That's my solitude time. Sometimes I won't have earphones in. It'll just be think. Mm-hmm. It'll just be kind of reflect. It, it'll be like a a, a, a high-intensity meditation. Yeah. Um, and it's just go enjoy that time by myself. I think, um, I think Nietzsche once said that the only good ideas 
come from a long, long walk. There is something magical about, and I've, I try, I have adopted that as well. Um, I make sure to have a lot of walks with no earbuds, no phone, just force yeah. myself into my thoughts. And it is amazing. The ideas that'll come about the way you'll sort out problems. There's just something magic. You know, there's all kinds of uh, scientific research to back that up. It's not just like, huh, who knew? No, it's, it's real. It's, it's, um, it's amazing what a good long walk will do. So that's the thing. I, and so now adding that extra element of physical endurance to, to my walks, dude, I, it's, I love oh, yeah. it. Now, do you well, have a particular, do you have a real ruck pack? Do you use one of your military ones or did you get a go ruck? Cause I'm just using an old North face with a dumbbell in it just to make, yeah. just cause I'm just now starting, but I think I want to up my game. Um, do you, do you use anything in particular? So I, I looked at getting one of the go ruck packs. Mm-hmm. They're kind of um, pricey. And from everything I hear, they're great, great yeah. quality. But I, so I have an old assault pack that I carried in, in Iraq in, okay. in my first deployment. And so I, I was a radio operator. So it has a little pouch where the radio would go um, or your your um, your bladder for water. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was looking at GoRuck and I, I did buy a GoRuck plate, one of like the yep. 35 pound ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I measured it out and I was like, hey, perfect fit. So instead of buying the ruck also, I, I just bought the the plate. Smart. Um, slip it into my 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 current my backpack, and then there's enough room to where if I'm going on a shorter ruck, it's like, oh no, sweetie, you're not going on a shorter ruck with lightweight. Throw another ten pound plate in there. There you go. Um, uh, or then all right, if I haven't rucked in a while, all right, I'll back it off. Yeah. Do a, do do a lighter one, but you know, start off with thirty five pounds and then the bladder. Um, but but try to do at least forty five pounds. Um, but I mean, gone up to to sixty. Which is as high as I'll go on a. That's a lot of weight, dude. Without a frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then also, I mean, I'm a bigger guy, so I need to to do that. But like, what I love about it too is, so sometimes if I'll go to the capital, so I'll drive up there, I'll do my ruck. I like ending it where I have to go up a hill. Yeah. Because it's like. You have to. I know. I like it. Unless I you're agree. willing to just live down at the bottom of the hill for the rest of your life. Yeah. It's like, no, you got to get up that hill now. Love it. And you do it at the end when you're dead tired. Yep. Um, and then what, what, what I find to be the hardest with doing the ruck by myself is so um, in the army, um, when we would go and do rucks or we would do runs, it was like, all right, we're going to run out to this point. We're going to turn around, come back, and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Go out to that point, and then you're running back or you're rucking back, and you think you're at the end point, but you keep on going. Yeah. That, it it hits you here. Yeah. I think, like, you know, I think Goggins screams about that in one of his videos where it's just like, you keep on going and you're soft, and you start seeing people fall out. Yeah. It's hard to trick yourself Mm -hmm. when you're rucking by yourself because it's like, but but I, I sometimes find a way to do it where it's like, all right, I'm back at my truck. Yeah. Keep on going. Do yeah. a little bit more. Um, yeah. Or I, I've always got a um, one of the things I've really come to love is uh, sandbags. Yeah, I'll, so I'm, I'm going to order some. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're great. I, I love them. So well, when I go up to the Capitol, I've always got sandbag in the back of my truck. Yeah. And um, so I'll get done. I'll put my ruck up and that sandbag's there laughing at me saying, you won't pick me up. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, yeah. And then I found some nice stairs over there by the Capitol Visitor Center. So when you're running up them, you get this cool view of the Capitol Dome. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I'll go out there with my sandbag 
and uh, do, do do some slow high knees up the stairs, um, carry it back down, maybe do some uh, do, do some just real light deadlifts or or sometimes when I come back um, for from somewhere else, I'll get here and we, we've got a really good gym in our apartment. Yeah, and it's like, all right, guess what? Just did a ruck, but let's go hit some more legs. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. It, it, I think you'll like this, or maybe you won't. Um, but so, so I just turned forty a, a little bit ago, and my birthday present to myself is what I'm calling every day is leg day. Yeah. Um. So if I'm in the gym and the squat rack is open, I'm gonna do a light. I'm gonna do at least three light sets. Smart. Um, even if leg day's tomorrow. Smart. Um. And I, I've really loved doing the um, paw squats. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this one guy I, I've uh, I saw on YouTube. Dude's an animal. Um, mm-hmm. Ryan Humiston, I think, is his name. Okay. Dude's huge, and he's like, "All right, if you hate yourself like I do, do this next time you go to the gym. Five seconds down, five second pause, five seconds up, but not all the way up. Three oh. quarters of the way up. Yeah. Your time under tension. Yeah. Buddy, a hundred fifty pounds. The third rep, I'm starting to question everything that led to me getting to this point in my life. But dude, I'm telling you, like, oh. so Ben Patrick needs over toes guy. If you've seen any of his work, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, legs are Mike Mutzel one time. He, a guy who has um, high intensity health, love Mutzel. And he posted not too long ago, this, all this research about the benefits of strong legs and having a strong trunk. And he's like, you know, big thighs save lives. And it's true. I mean, I'm telling you, dude, yeah. you, you don't, don't skip leg day just for the big quads, but that's when you're old and you know, you're 40, I'm 47. The older we get, you keep those legs strong. Well, I tell you what, another great old Astro that had monster quads and he, he had the career to speak to the benefits of it. Nolan Ryan, if you go back and look at Nolan Ryan's training regiment, dude, so much of it was based on his leg strength. And so, no, I think you're absolutely, so I've started doing a lot more um, ancestral squats where you go all the way down, like, you know, like, like like our Mm -hmm. ancestors used to sit around the campfire, try to do a lot more of that. A lot of um, unassisted get-ups, a lot more squats. I do a lot more squatting all throughout the day, not just whenever I'm working out. And then, and pull-ups. I'm, I'm kind of like what you're doing with squats. I've decided I'm going to do a hundred pull-ups every day. And I, and I don't do them all at once. I'll do yeah. four at a time and I'll do some of them in the morning, some in the afternoon, but throughout the day, I'm going to crush a hundred pull-ups. And if I do that and some squats, and I think it was Mark Devine, you know, Navy SEAL that has, I mean, I wish I could call Mark's uh, um, training deal he's got out in Florida. But he's just like, you know, you do those nickels and dimes every day. Like Goggins always talks about, do your five pull-ups and do uh, do, do 10 air squats or 10 uh, push-ups every day. Just do those every day in, in high quantity. And that's what I love to hear about what you're talking about with the, with the sandbag, doing light deadlifts and finding stairs. You know, people, they, they think you've got to go to the gym and have this planned, scheduled workout every day. It's all or nothing. No, man. Just I tell people all the time. Just set a timer at your desk. If you sit a lot, set a timer for 15 to 30 minutes. Never 15 or 30 minutes. Get up. Go do 20 air squats. Do that throughout the day. Crush 100 air squats throughout the day. You can find these little micro workouts. That's how you get to longevity. That's how you keep moving into old age. And so I, I love to hear, hear that, man. I think that's fantastic. Well, and I'll tell you, too. I mean, after being more consistent doing that, mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned – I have shrapnel in my knee. Yeah. It, 
set up my patellar a bit, um, you know, a couple of abrasions to the ACL. Um, but even before that, just having been infantry and doing that walk around, uh, like I mentioned, infantry, your job, walk around with heavy pack, gun, find stuff. Yeah. My knees were terrible. Um, since I've been more consistent on doing the squats and the deadlifts mm-hmm. and, and doing it right yep. um, and, and doing the rucking, and then I, I think the collagen, drinking collagen yep. every day yep. helps. My knees feel better yep. than they did since before I played football in high school. Wow. Like my knees feel great. Um, it used to be get up. Getting up was a labor because, you know, carrying a bit more weight up top and up front mm-hmm. um, than, than I want to. But just the wear and tear on it. But yeah. now, get around too easy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, between the collagen and, and the squats and building up that muscle around it, feel great. Better than, better than ever. Well, you're, you're wise for doing it, and that's the last thing I'll, I'll tell this audience. Uh, and, but I won't get under the soapbox, but one of the things I started to neglect as I got older, I thought if I just crush a ton of cardio on my Peloton and lots of walks, all that, I'm, I'm good to go. No, you need strength. Strength, strength, strength. Uh, Dr. Michael Eads, author of the New York Times bestseller, Protein Power, just a brilliant human being. He's been on the show a couple times, and he'll tell you, as you get older, it's all about strength. You know, If you can get muscle mass for bone density, you, it, the older we get, the more strength we've got to maintain. And guys our age, you need – don't bow up, you know, be like, you know, bro house or whatever. Um, but you need to put on muscle now because it's – it, it only gets harder as you get older. So, you know, kind of don't, I, I tell people yeah. all the time, don't neglect going and, and having some resistance training. Kenneth, dude, I, I want to talk a little bit more about just kind of what it's like inside the beltway during these crazy times. But man, we, I'm just gonna have to get you back on. We got to do this more often. This was so fun <laughs> catching up with you. I love hearing from yeah, you. You're man. a brilliant guy. We didn't even talk about your time and all your time you've spent in Israel. You know, you've got a master's degree from, uh, from Tel Aviv, right? University. Yep. I mean, so you've got so many. You're just a, a phenomenal guy. Thank you so much for defending mine, my family's, and every listening, every listener of this podcast's freedom. And you've got the scars and, like you said, the shrapnel in your knees to to show for it. And just thank you, brother, and for being such an incredible personal friend to me throughout the years. And uh, I love you, brother. And I can't. We need to go get some more Mexican food in Austin or somewhere with Rita. And if you guys are ever headed back this way, uh, we uh, oh, Stanley's. Come on. Oh, we'll get some barbecue at Stanley's. Absolutely, my yeah. man. And as I, of, so I told someone who's driving through that way. Someone I know in another office in our hallway, and they said, "Yeah, I'm driving through East Texas." And I was like, "Even if it's out of your way, yeah, go to Tyler, go to Stanley's, get that mother clucker." Oh uh, yeah, absolutely, so, absolutely. Blow yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, brother, all right, well, I'm going to I'm gonna do a little sign-off here. Let me see here. That is Kenneth. I'm Jason. Hey, if you guys are listening to this on the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. And if you're watching on the YouTube channel, please click subscribe. And whatever you do, always endeavor to improve, always and always. He's Kenneth. I'm Jason. And we're out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>